Coming up today, we explain how the Delta variant took over and delve deep into the mysteries of the Golden Triangle. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Vicky Turk. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Microsoft unveiled Windows 11. The new OS is basically Windows 10, but with some very minor cosmetic changes and security updates. Quite why Microsoft thought this warranted launching a whole new operating system remains unclear, but it's likely got something to do with Apple nibbling away at its market share. It was also the week when Apple, amid investigations into its App Store policies, claimed that if it was forced to allow third-party App Stores to exist, then people's security would be at risk. In a 16-page report, it said there would be more ransomware and financial scams like there are on Google's Android Play Store uh, if Apple didn't have control. And it was the week when emergency doctors warned that they'd observed a rise in childhood infections that are usually seen in winter as children leave social distancing and begin to mix with their peers again. Doctors report seeing more children with fevers caused by conditions such as respiratory syncytial virus, although the symptoms are usually mild. What did we learn this week, I wonder? Matt Reynolds, let's start with you. So I learned that in 1971, a NASA astronaut called Stuart Rooser took 500 tree seeds around the moon on a NASA mission to basically see what effect microgravity had on seeds. Now, around 15 of those seeds were meant to have come back to UK, and we thought they did come back to UK, but since then, they've completely disappeared. So the UK Space Agency is looking for help to locate the UK's missing moon trees. If you've got any leads, you can email us at podcast at wired.co.uk. Now, so how would you know if you had, um, would you have like a levitating tree in your back garden? It might have some moon fruit on it. What would the clues be? What should I be looking out for? Yeah, you would just, your tree would only grow in completely waterless, ashen soil. So Mm. yeah, just look out for trees that seem to really like being neglected and being kept in the dark. If they're on the dark side, I'm not really sure. (laughs) (laughs) As you can see, my knowledge of the moon is failing me instantly. But get in touch if you've got any leads. Podcast.wired.co.uk, help us find the missing moon trees. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Uh, I've learned something that's very contemporary and is happening at the moment, which is basically just I read the news um, and uh, was read about basically the biggest... uh, scandal in recent decades that's going on in u.s baseball at the moment so um over the last few years uh, there's been a rise in players using uh what are known as uh, in, in the baseball terminology foreign substances um to uh, basically put on their fingers so they can grip the ball more um and the reason that uh, i sort of learned about this was because um in one of the games this week uh, one of the uh, players called uh, jacob de grom was asked to show the gum 
the umpire his glove, cap, and also to undo his belt buckle to prove he wasn't hiding any sort of secret resin or anything like that. Um, and there was a video that was doing the rounds of him sort of undoing his belt buckle in the middle of the field and pulling his uh, pulling his trousers, sports trousers, whatever they were, down a little bit, um, which uh, sort of went semi-viral. And I was just a bit like, what the hell's going on here? And then learnt about the scandal. So this is similar to things that have happened in cricket, right, with teams using rough materials to like scuff up the ball so that it swings better. But in this case, it's to help the pitcher grip the ball better so they can spin it more. Yeah, as I as I understand it, um, and basically uh, in recent, uh, because they've been doing that and the pitchers have been performing better, sort of batting averages and stuff have gone down. And there was sort of an investigation into some of this and there was uh, various types of homemade glue and sort of like uh, really just strange adhesives uh, being used uh, on the balls by some of the pitchers, uh, which I, know, I thought was interesting. Moon trees and strange adhesives. Never say we don't bring you variety. Speaking of variety, our first story this week is about the Delta variant, Vicky. Yeah, the Delta variant, also known as the B16172 strain of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. We're hearing a lot about it, especially in the UK right now. Matt, it's gone from sort of a niche variant to suddenly being absolutely everywhere. Yeah, that's right, Vicky. So this was first detected in the UK in March, and now the Delta variant makes up almost all new coronavirus coronavirus cases in the UK. So data on new variants is a little bit lagged, but in the week leading up to June the 16th, there are around 3,630 new sequenced cases. So that's cases that we've basically analysed the genome of, so we can say pretty much what variant that they're part of. So there are 33,600 new sequence cases of this Delta variant, which was a 79% increase over the previous week. And if you just compare that to the Alpha variant, which obviously was, you know, a few months ago, by far the most common variant. And we were talking on the show about how, you know, it had gone from standard coronavirus to, you know, Alpha being everywhere. Well, in that same period, there's only around 4,100 cases of the Alpha variant. So you can just see how much this um, you know, the kind of weight of new viruses has, has swung towards the Delta variant. And in fact, more recent data shows that 99% of cases that have been sequenced are actually the Delta variant. So it's pretty much all of the new cases in the UK and now this variant. And it's also the case in other parts of the world. So uh, data from the Financial Times shows that in the US, around 40% of cases of the Delta variant is catching up in Europe, or at least in some countries in Europe too. So it's around 70% of cases, sequenced cases in Greater Lisbon, in June and in Italy that's more than 20 and actually it as these things happen you know they start kind of slowly and then you know over time they gradually end you know make up more or less all of the cases you're seeing so because of that trend the EU has warned that by August the Delta variant could make up over 90% of all cases throughout the region. And this is having a real impact on our total coronavirus or COVID case numbers here in the UK. Just as things were starting to look much better, restrictions were being lifted, cases have been going up again. On June 24th, the UK reported more than 16,000 new cases of COVID-19, which is the highest we've seen since February. It's not really the direction we want to be going in, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So after a period of low cases, they're starting to rise again. Although some slight positive signs that are that that rate of increase seems to be starting to level off in the UK. So 
hopefully we're not going to hit the highs that we saw, you know, in January and February or, or you know, in, in the previous peak last year. But a significant factor in this rise has been the Delta variant. And, you know, to kind of follow this back to where it began, it was first detected in India way back at the end of December 2020. And it was likely a pretty significant driving factor in the second wave that the country saw in spring. I, you remember those awful scenes that we saw in spring of hospitals running out of oxygen in India and, you know, really, really you know, terrible spike in, spike in cases around March and April. Now, it took until late March for Delta to find its way to the UK. But when it did, it got established pretty quickly. And that's probably because it was introduced to the country multiple times. And that happened while it was still cold and people were spending a lot of their time indoors. And as restrictions started to ease as well, there were more opportunities for the virus to spread. So really, we had this, you know, perfect situation for everything to kind of take off and Delta to take hold in the UK in a way that it hasn't quite in other countries. We've seen different variants of SARS-CoV-2 before. You mentioned Alpha earlier. What is it about the Delta variant that is making it so prevalent? How did it come to dominate the case numbers in the way that it has? Yeah, just to put that into context, you know, we were, as you mentioned, you know, we were worried about the Alpha variant, you know, appeared in Kent back in September 2020. But this Delta variant is estimated to be around 60% more transmissible than that variant. So it's a, you know, a really big stepping up. And, you know, the reason for that really, as it always is, is about mutations, right? Which is how viruses change over time. And any change in the virus's function is going to be down to some kind of mutation in its genome. So this Delta variant has more than a dozen mutations. But we think the ones that contribute to its increased transmissibility are in the region that encodes the virus's spike protein. And that's basically the hook that it uses to get into our cells. And some of these mutations we haven't seen before, you'll remember from alpha variant that that had mutations in its spike protein. And that's true of lots of different variants. Basically, the mutations that happen in the spike protein are much more likely to cause changes in transmissibility because that's the really, really important bit for the virus. Um, and what we think is going on is that something's altered the structure of the spike protein. So it's finding it easier to latch onto human cells and that's what's making it more transmissible so really it's the same story again but slightly different mutations causing a slightly different change of function that in this case increases the transmissibility over even the alpha variant which was pretty transmissible to begin with and as well as being transmitted more easily this variant may also be causing greater problems when people get it there's some evidence that suggests it may be more virulent it may be more harmful to people yeah, and it's always really, really difficult to know exactly what's going on with this because you know, there's all kinds of factors over who exactly is getting ill and is it making people in different age groups ill at the same rate? And I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff out there which is saying that there are slightly different symptoms that might be associated with Delta variant. So it's, it's always quite difficult to say precisely um, how harmful this virus is compared to other you know, other versions of the virus, not least because we have different interventions, we have different um, people at risk now than we did, you know, last year or whenever. But it does seem that the Delta variant seems to be associated with more severe disease, as well as increased transmissibility, which is obviously not a great uh, package to have together. There's not a whole bunch of data on this, as I said, but there's one Scottish study that found that the Delta variant was associated with about double, about double the risk of hospitalisation compared with the Alpha variant, which is obviously pretty worrying really. Now the hugely positive thing at the moment is that the vaccines are still largely effective against the Delta variant so that's a really really good thing but in the situation we're in now in the UK with high rates of vaccination among certain groups of the population it means that the variant is affecting a very different demographic of people. Now younger healthier people are getting ill with this Delta variant rather than 
perhaps older or more vulnerable people, as we saw in the first stages of the pandemic. That is sort of a good thing, though, in a way, right? Yeah, it is good news. And like you said, it's it's essentially news that means that these vaccines are working. They seem to be doing exactly what we want them to do, preventing against serious disease and death in the most vulnerable people. And for what it's worth, we do know that vaccines are still very effective against the Delta variant. So two doses of the Pfizer vaccine are around 96% effective against hospitalisation from the Delta variant. And for AstraZeneca, that's 92% after two doses. You know, that's really, really high. And basically, if you're fully vaccinated, there's a pretty good chance you're defended against the worst of the Delta variant. So, you know, the headline of that is, if you haven't had your two doses, make sure you finish your vaccine regime because that's super, super important. But the other important thing is that, as you said, Vicky, this changes the demographics of who is getting ill. And because most older people in the UK have already had two vaccines, it means that the people we're seeing coming into hospital tend to be younger people. And that's a big reversal from the first two waves. And as we know, although there are certain things about Delta that are different, the same rules apply in insofar as if you're older, you're probably going to get more severe illness. And because these older people tend to be more protected, that means that we're seeing the rates of severe illness drop per cases. So the number of people that go into hospital per 1,000 cases has dropped significantly compared to you know, the wave back in um, you know, the, the winter of 2020, 2021, and before then. And that's just a really positive sign that vaccines are working as intended. And that's why we don't seem to be seeing uh, deaths increase at the same ratio as they did in earlier waves. So really, although the situation is worrying, there are some very positive signs that the vaccine regime is, is doing exactly what we wanted it to do. So although the cases are going up to what they were in some days in February, deaths are nowhere near the number that they were at that time in the UK. What about other countries? Where else is the Delta variant a concern? Obviously, in the UK, we've managed to vaccinate a lot of people already, but that's not the case for many countries. What's the situation elsewhere? Yeah, I, I think the, the simple answer to that is, is the Delta variant is a concern for everyone because it's out there and it's becoming the dominant strain. And that means that if you're going to have a circulating pandemic, there's a good chance that Delta can, if it can you know, get a foothold in the country, it can take hold. But that said, it's very clear that Delta has taken hold in some countries much more than others. So as I said, you know, it most strongly took hold in the UK, uh, the US and parts of parts of Europe, as well as India, of course, were as first identified. And one of the reasons we know that, you know, it's, it's taken hold so much in, you know, in these countries is that in the UK, for example, we're pretty good at sequencing virus genomes. So we can spot new variants when they arrive and we can see, um, you know, what proportion of cases are that new variant. And we can see which variants are taking hold. In other countries, we just don't have anywhere near as much of a clear picture of how the variants are changing and, and what's becoming dominant. And that's obviously a worry because although the total number of global daily cases is, is way down from its peak in April 2021. There are loads and loads of countries where the vaccination rates are still really, really low and don't have a whole bunch of protection against an ongoing pandemic. In fact, in low-income countries, less than 1% of people have had at least one dose. So that's 
tiny and the worry is is that there could be more transmission there which means more potential for new variants and a repeat of what we saw with alpha and then the delta variant if you think about it you know part of the reason perhaps that delta arose in india is they just had a huge amount of transmission going on and huge amount of transmission means more opportunities for a variant to take hold and that's really the you know the warning maybe you get a, a variant of delta or you get a, you know a more worrying variant in some other form and that's just a a symptom of ongoing transmission. And the way to get that down is you know, to, to have interventions, but also it's to you know, have effective vaccines. And that's really the, the story. And that's not really happening at the rate that we'd like to in, in lots of parts of the world. And this is why it's so important that we keep rates low around the whole world, because if a variant, you know, did come around that was perhaps less the vaccines were less effective against, that's going to affect everyone, not just the country where it originates from. What happens from here? When will we be worrying about the next variant? When will Delta be next? Old news and maybe we'll be thinking about the Epsilon variant or whatever it is that comes next. That might be now. Um, On June 11th, Public Health England identified some Delta virus genomes that had an added mutation, which was called uh, K417N which we first saw in the beta variant, which, um, you know, people were talking about the South African variant. That was, that was where it was first identified a, a while back. Now, there are some fears that this could make Delta more transmissible. Some people are calling this Delta Plus, this idea that it's kind of a, a sub-variant, although exactly where Delta becomes a slightly different variant is, is a slightly woolly line, really. So it's quite, it's quite difficult to exactly uh, say how that relates to naming conventions. But the thing is, is, we don't know a whole bunch about this variant, and currently it only makes up a pretty small proportion of circulating viruses. So although PHE is tracking this separately, and when you see data on Delta, it it separates out which viruses or which genomes have showed this other mutation, it's really difficult to know whether this is going to become a problem. Because the funny thing is, really, with variants, and we saw this with Alpha, and then we saw it with Delta, perhaps you see some early cases and you say, oh, 1% of um, you know, sequence genomes of this different variant, well, you don't really know if it's a problem until it's caught on, and then it's too late. And then you're dealing with a situation where 99% of all genomes are the Delta variant, just as we had the same situation with Alpha. So this seems to be like a slightly worrying mutation, but we've heard this lots and lots in the past. So, you know, Delta's a thing to worry about at the moment. And really, the answer is, is that the things you do to intervene with this are just the same, right? You increase the vaccination rate, you bring back restrictions if they're required, if it seems that hospitalizations are getting out of control and all of that stuff. So really worrying about Delta variant is just the same as worrying about Delta plus, it's just the same as worrying about alpha. So just keep doing those things that we're doing already and, and ramp it up, I guess is the, you know, the takeaway message. What a lot of people have been saying for a very long time is the way out of this pandemic is a race between the virus and vaccines, right? So in countries where you've got very broad coverage of single doses, the race is to get another jab into people's arms. In countries where you have very low coverage entirely amongst whole populations or certain parts of a community, the race is to just get people to take a first jab. And this is going to be a problem for potentially years, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a really key part of that message is, is that although it's great for the UK that such a high proportion of people have had two jabs, 
that doesn't necessarily count for a whole bunch if the dangerous variants are going to come from outside of the UK and they're going to happen because there's high transmission in countries where they don't have a high rate of vaccines and that might come back and, you know, bite the UK. So I think the message is, is, well, unless we have really good vaccine coverage across the world and all these countries are, you know, vulnerable from the pandemic, then that's our problem as well. It's not a problem for India. It's not just a problem for Brazil or for, you know, Nigeria or whatever countries. Low vaccine coverage in other parts of the world is a real problem for new variants. And that's a problem for the UK. So I do think that hopefully this will shine even more light on the, you know, the need to share vaccines internationally and just get that overall, you know, rate up. Because at the end of the day, the really simple calculation is more transmission means more variant, which means more risks, even for countries that have had, you know, high vaccine coverage or, or you know, whatever natural immunity. So, so yeah, it's just all about, like you say, that race in time and really directing vaccines to where they're most needed. And we've seen renewed calls from the travel industry, I mean, continuous calls from the travel industry to open up travel to more countries, for the UK to put more countries onto the green list. And as we move through this pandemic and we approach autumn and winter, there's probably going to be even more pressure to return to normal and for people to be able to fly wherever they like and into the UK from wherever they like. And that's basically what the virus wants us to do right you can have 90 percent of the uk adult population with two doses in their arm but if you've got people flying in from all over the world and we don't have a clear idea of what variants they may be carrying then as you say it's no longer quote unquote a problem for us but it is the second that a variant of concern gets into the uk and we're not able to shut it down quickly enough which is exactly what happened with delta right yeah i I think that's a really good point because there's obviously been a lot of talk about herd immunity thresholds and, you know, if we can get 85% of people double jabbed in the UK, if we can get 90% of people double jabbed in the UK, well, that's fine, right? But that's, maybe that's okay if you want to do New Zealand and completely shut your borders and say, we're going to deal with our country as an isolated unit. But if you want your country to take part in international trade, you want them to take part in sporting events and you want people to be able to travel to the continent and further abroad, well, you have to think, I'm not really just talking about herd immunity within my country. I'm talking about can my country withstand if, you know, several dozen infected people come per day and spark, um, you know, new infections. Because as we know, even if you have 90% of people jabbed, there's going to be vulnerable people. There's At the moment, there's a lot of young people, obviously, that don't have protection. There's a lot of people that couldn't be jabbed or maybe don't want to be jabbed. So you do have to think about this concept of herd immunity in the slightly wider context of, well, we're actually part of much bigger communities when there's international travel and all those things so yeah i do think that the international travel question really you know does come into it and that's why you know this question of green lists and amber lists and red lists is like really not going to go away over the next you know few months and it's especially going to be important as you know if we see new variants arrive in, in other countries as well and that herd immunity threshold keeps going up, right? So for the alpha variant, it was maybe in the 70%. For the delta variant, it's probably in excess of 85 90%. There's only so many people that we can jab. And there are questions, right, in developed countries right now, should we be giving doses of the vaccine to children when there are huge areas of the world where less than 1% of adults have had a single dose of the vaccine. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show on that story or anything else that we talk about on the show this week or any of the previous shows if you're going back through the archive. Now, our second story this week is all about the great warehouse building boom. It really is interesting, trust me. So it won't come as a surprise that online shopping is pretty popular right now, but the pandemic has only accelerated trends that have been rumbling on for years, right? But this is a very sudden, very rapid shift, and it's had some strange knock-on effects. The need for ludicrous amounts of warehouse space 
to name um, to meet our demand for next day delivery. So online shopping warehouses, it turns out, require about three times the logistical footprint of physical shops. As a result, in the last six years, the size of the average warehouse, I told you it was interesting, in the UK has increased from 20,160 square metres to around 31,590 square metres. And demand has also increased because of several supply shops in recent years. So we've had Brexit. That was fun. And that caused lots of fears and chaos at the borders and disrupted global trade. That's resulted in companies buying up warehouse space in order to hold back more stock than usual in the last three to four years in the run-up to Brexit. Then we had the pandemic, panic buying, which triggered fears of food shortages during the early stage of the pandemic. That caused companies to invest in even more warehouse space. And issues with shipping in the last 18 months because of port closures around COVID-19 and the disruption in the Suez Canal. Well, that led to even more stockpiling and risk of shortages and people basically speculating on more warehouse space. You could call it a perfect storm, but it's really just a lot of warehouses. And what's happened is that lots of retailers have gone from the well-known just-in-time model to the more problematic just-in-case model. And Matt, almost all of this is taking place, in the UK at least, in a mystical place called the Golden Triangle. That is right, James. So the Golden Triangle, as it's known, is a vast patch of land that's between Northamptonshire, Tamworth and Nottingham. For people who don't have a a good UK geographic knowledge, it's roughly in the middle of England and is sort of accessible uh, through a lot of major travel routes. Um, And the area exists because essentially now, as you mentioned, James, the retail sector in uh, UK has very much shifted to being um, driven by demand from online shopping. So e-commerce now accounts for one in every four pounds that is spent, and that's up from nine. That's up nine percentage points compared to May 2019. Um, and as you mentioned, over the last year, a lot of people are spending a lot of time at home, which means there's been a lot more deliveries, and all that stuff has to be stored somewhere before it arrives in the cardboard boxes at our door. And that's where the golden triangle comes into things. So logistics companies and on online retail giants have chosen the area because it's possible to get to more than 90% of the UK population within a four hour drive within anywhere in within the Golden Triangle. Um, so the first uh, company to take uh, a residence in this area was the supermarket Asda, um, which uh, is in a, a park called Magna Park Lutterworth, which is a 550 acre logistics park with 771,000 uh, square meters of warehouse space in the and they took place well, as they moved there in the late 1980s. And since then, it's be- become a big logistics hub within the UK. But the Golden Triangle is actually getting bigger. There are more warehouses being built in the triangle itself, but it's also um, the overall area it covers is growing out as well. So one of the experts that we spoke to said that it's spreading north, it's spreading south, it's spreading east, and it's really more of a diamond than a Golden Triangle uh, now. So the shape of the triangle itself is is changing. And there's some more stats about its growth as well. So in 2015, the Golden Triangle was home to 13.4 million square metres of warehouse space, which is just over uh, 1,800 football fields. And last week on the podcast, we had a fact about uh, the size of a football pitch, which I didn't know the answer to. But this week, I've looked it up. um, And the size of a football pitch is, uh, well, it has to be between certain areas and like each club and uh, stadium can actually decide on the size of its own pitch. But it has to be between 100 yards 
in length and 130 la- yards in length and the width has to be no less than 50 yards and no more than 100 yards so the, the size of a f- football pitch can vary um, and essentially uh, Savills which is one of the retail uh, not sorry not retail companies it's a real estate company that looks at these sorts of things uh, now believes that the golden trial triangle has expanded to 18.5 million uh, square meters of warehouse space and it's that's basically adding an extra 715 football fields and over the next few years it's going to grow as well there's planning permission to expand the warehouse capacity 60 percent from its current size so call it a diamond call it a triangle call it a dodecahedron call it whatever you like it's a very very big swathe of england that's full of warehouses and you're well you're not from the warehouses matt but it's sort of in your backyard right where you grew up and surely this boom in warehouses is having a pretty big impact on people that live in that area yeah so myself and actually also matt reynolds are both from northamptonshire originally so this is uh, basically on our doorstep um and obviously the size and the basic space that all these warehouses take up does have an impact on the people that live in the local area it creates jobs which is obviously a very good thing but um the expansion of it is increasing people's worries about the impact the changes are having on their community and in some cases they're now starting to fight back um so in one uh, area um there is there are plans for a 40,000 square meter uh corner of some woods which are sort of like a historic uh ancient piece of woodland uh, near Kettering in Northamptonshire um they, they want to build some warehouses there and if plans go ahead uh, it will be tarmacked over and replaced with a new warehouse um so Ash Davies who is a conservative councillor from the area says that um the Golden Triangle has its benefits it's obviously he says it's very central they're close to road links and that's why there's a lot of warehouses that are built there but um, they also say that the development that's being done uh, needs to be done in a way that looks after the community and the spaces that are used there. Essentially, the point is Northamptonshire and the surrounding areas can't simply become a giant logistics parking lot for the rest of the country. Arguably, it kind of already has, right? Not necessarily in a negative way, but there's an inevitability to the area that is in the middle of a country becoming something of a logistics hub for getting stuff to the majority of people that live within that country. So our reporter, Chris Stoker-Walker, spoke to Steve Esler, who used to work in the warehousing sector, sector, and he lives in Brambleside in Kettering, which is right in the heart of the Golden Triangle, and he's been there for 23 years. He describes the logistical merry-go-round occurring on his doorstep as chaos. Might seem a bit much, but maybe not. The A14, which is one of the major roads in the area, regularly comes to a standstill because of the number of trucks, with some spilling their loads all over the road, which can happen uh, with very, very big trucks and lots of traffic. uh, And as he says, chaos. So recent spills on roads around Northamptonshire include cases of energy drinks, jugs of hand sanitizer, and an awful lot of offal, which probably wasn't very nice. Esther says that as a result, driving the area has become downright unpleasant and residents are getting pretty fed up. Now, you might think hard luck, Steve, right? The speed of change in the area has been very dramatic. And that's really what this is about. So think huge swathes of countryside being turned into whopping great big warehouses. And these things are popping up right next to where people live rather than being tucked away on industrial states. And they're also getting bigger and bigger. And ultimately, this warehouse building boom, driven particularly by Brexit and the pandemic, and this just-in-case rather than just-in-time model, is leading to a strange situation. Warehouses are being built without any clear idea if they'll 
ever be needed or ever be used. This is the rise map of speculative warehousing. It is a, a, a concept that was new to me until this week. Um, but both Davies, the councillor who I mentioned earlier, and Esler, who, who just mentioned who used to work in warehousing, take issue with the rise of uh, speculative warehouse building. This is essentially when uh, sites are built without a tenant in mind. So you're building the warehouse and then uh, hopefully you're going to get somebody uh, that will come into it rather than commissioning the warehouse uh, with a particular tenant in in mind and and Esler has claimed that like four or five warehouses near one of the major roads uh, were built uh, two years ago without being filled a couple of these it seems have uh, recently been taken up but essentially at the moment warehouse vacancy rates across these midlands currently stand at around five percent which in normal times uh, would be expected to trigger rental growth according to Savills um, and increasingly some of the warehouses have been built to to meet demand from investors in Europe, the Middle East and the United States. So, for instance, Texas-based investment firm Heinz has bought uh, at least five warehouses in the Golden Triangle in less than a year, while American pension investor Blackstone is also a big buyer in the area. Um, The thing that people in the area want is if there is going to be more warehouses is that the infrastructure needs to keep pace with the growth. You don't want lots of empty warehouses because they might just because they might be needed one day, you want them to be uh, built because they're needed now and plans uh, for their use are actually drawn up. Um, Obviously, long-term planning means more jobs for an area and going forward is likely to be more demand uh, is one of the big things that stands out. So David says that one of the crucial things is that infrastructure keeps pace with growth and any developments have good business plans behind them. uh, So we aren't left with lots of empty warehouses built for speculative letting. Um, And essentially, he says that he welcomes comes uh, plans for long-term growth in the area um, because it can help the local local towns and, and jobs and overall uh, improve uh, some of the sort of like prospects for some of the area but one of the things that we know that is going to happen uh, is the online shopping boom isn't going to stop so forecasts from analysts at Forrester predicted that uh, online shopping will account for 30% of all retail in the UK by 2025 up from its present level of around 28% which ultimately could mean more warehouses and there's a chance that those warehouses end up in the golden triangle or the golden diamond but there's also a chance that this thing starts to spread out right so there could be quite big implications for all of us it could mean that ultimately the the golden triangle no longer becomes the place to go to build a warehouse and one outcome of this boom could mean that we start building warehouses closer to everybody right so they start spreading out a bit like a lovely fungus yeah, so while there is a lot of growth in the Golden Trial, it's, it, Triangle, it's not just a problem uh, for people who are living in the area, as you say, James. Um, four hours of driving is still quite a lot of driving if, if you're going to reach sort of further destinations. Um, and sort of centralization for deliveries might not make the most sense in the long term uh, in some scenarios. So there's a demand for quicker deliveries. We see sort of like Amazon Prime and other services trying to do same day delivery and uh even at smaller levels, you can get deliveries within within hours or within like minutes. I think some of the sort of gig economy companies are doing. Uh, and in those types of scenarios, um, people might want local warehouses that can allow the logistics firms to be able to collect whatever packages are needed and then to ship them to uh, their destinations faster. Um, the 
on the flip side, some people say that it's likely that we'll also see more people uh, interested in buying things locally r- rather than always from Amazon. So that could have an impact too, but uh, it's it's difficult to uh, predict a world where a lot of consumer change will move away from Amazon very quickly uh, or other big sort of warehouse logistical systems. Uh, there's also the environmental impact, so a push for decarbonisation and, and to reduce road miles and become net zero is pushing distribution centres outside of the Golden Triangle as well, uh, some of the people involved have told us, um, and sort of essentially two-thirds of online retailers retailers across Europe have told uh, real, real estate firm CBRE that they're planning on expanding their logistics operations outside of traditional hubs. So there is also the interest from uh, companies uh, who are doing the logis- logistics side of things to move their distribution away from where they normally do. So change is coming, essentially. To summarise, change is coming. But what's potentially interesting right is if people have got brownfield or greenfield i'm going to sound like a terrible nimbius but if people have got brownfield and greenfield sites near where they live that rather than there being questions over should it be developed for new housing which yes yes it should you could end up in a situation where actually it's approved for the development of local warehouse space so that this just-in-time and just-in-case model can come closer to home, so you get around, you get around these problems of centralization and demands for decarbonization. So it could end up with, rather than sites being used for housing, they're used for warehouse space, or people end up that rather than something that's good for their local community is built on a site near them, that a series of small warehouses for just-in-time, just-in-case logistics models are built near them, and Northamptonshire has kind of shown that there are good sides to that and bad sides to that, but it's going to cause some shocks in local communities when warehouses start popping up right on people's doorsteps, right? Yeah, I I don't think there'll be too many people that uh, would advocate for building a warehouse just down the end of their, uh, down the end of the street from them. But I think that if we are going to keep going towards this uh, model of faster deliveries, more things being delivered, etc. Need to really think about sort of some of the the benefits and negatives of building giant warehouses or different types of distribution models and things like that. So I think that it's very much a case of actually, if we're going to be building these these giant warehouses, need to have sort of like informed debates around um, where they should be built and, and the benefits and negatives of doing so. And we're speaking about this right off the back of uh, the biggest holiday event of the year, Amazon Prime Day. I don't know how you celebrated, but I had a, a wonderful time with my friends and family socially distanced. But you know, there are more and more people who are relying on next day delivery, who are used to these kinds of services being provided as default. And as that trend accelerates, we've well, got to put the stuff somewhere, right? or the trend has to change. And what we've seen off the back of the pandemic, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Matt, is companies that are set up to get stuff to you within 15 minutes. And there's a small industrial estate just down the road from me, which is being used by these gig economy companies to effectively have a a bunch of hidden corner shops slash DIY stores slash you can get your groceries and, and bits and bobs on demand, but you never see them. It's it's quite a rapid change, right? And it's it's happening without people noticing. 
Yeah, I think so. And like, particularly like with Deliveroo, uh, for instance, like they're a whole set of like dark kitchens and things, even though it's not retail. Um, it's all sort of linked in terms of that, like convenience and making it uh, easier for consumers to buy things. But we don't necessarily always see the impact of uh, these new shops or, or types of hybrid shops appearing in in local areas. But um, yeah, it's it's one of the things that I mean, we obviously live in London, so we're sort of like, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure and stuff that is available to us and those uh, types of companies expanding in that way, which I imagine isn't the case elsewhere. So it's probably there's a difference between cities and towns uh, and uh, and more rural areas as well, where some of these things probably aren't quite impacting in the same way. It'd be interesting to know uh, how things have been changing in your area. Podcast.wired.co.uk. Have you seen a real rise in these just-in-time, I-need-stuff-in-20-minutes delivery apps? Have industrial estates that are just down the road for you being taken over by logistics firms rather than, quote-unquote, local businesses? How have things changed during the pandemic? It might sound like logistics is boring, but it kind of has quite a profound impact on your local high street when lots of local businesses are replaced by companies that are plush with investor cash looking to kind of slip in as things are changing all around you. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Please do get in touch. All right, time for a couple of your emails now. Vicky, you're going to take on the first one. Yeah, Lim from Singapore writes in about the pH scale. So this was a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. I brought in a fact that blew my mind, which was that the pH scale is logarithmic, meaning that if you move up or down one number on the scale, you're actually talking about acids and, and alkalines that are uh, higher or lower by a factor of 10. Logarithmic. Uh, Lim adds another fact about the pH scale, which I did not know. So thank you very much, Lim. They say that the pH of pure water, which most of us probably know is seven neutral, is actually only seven at around 25 degrees Celsius. And the value or scale would actually change with temperature. Lim says a molecule of water is at, is equally likely to produce an H plus and OH negative ion. So it is just as likely to act as an acid or a base at the same time, though in very low degrees, so to speak. Lim, thank you so much for your pH scale knowledge. It truly is far more than we ever expected to find out about the pH scale. Thanks so much. One more email this week, Matt Burge, is about Chrome's creep into the education sector. Yeah, Jenny writes in about how Chrome is uh, essentially, as you say, creeping into the education sector. Uh, they're a computer science teacher in a school which is moving from Microsoft to Google, they say. Uh, before this change was happening, we would have all students using an Office 365 account, which would allow them to access sort of all of Microsoft's uh, sort of like productivity apps and Word and stuff like that. Um, and they would uh, basically everybody had the choice of using Internet Explorer, Edge or Chrome. Uh, and now that they're going the the Google way uh, because of uh, influence from their bigger academy. So all of the services are switching to Google compatible ones, including sort of Google Classroom to assign work and resources. Uh, And they say that these services only work if you're using Chrome and are logged into your school account. Uh, And Jenny says the issue is that we're becoming a Google school and this means we're educating a whole new generation to be Google dependent. Um, 
um, and that the argument for going the Google way is because it's free. Um, and essentially, they say that it's not just Google. All uh, schools are setting themselves up as being an Apple school, a Microsoft school, or a Google school using their own products and services. And it feels like they're a captive audience. And essentially, there may not be that much choice for people uh, when when they're using some of the products and services. Um, I don't think there's um, Jenny also asked if there is a, a solution to this. Um, I don't necessarily uh, know if there is a way to, to do that. But um, yeah, I guess it's one of those things where uh, schools will decide what, what types of services they want to use. And then you might be stuck with it. It's similar to, it's similar to the decision we all have to make, right? Everything that Google provides, more or less, is free. So when you're setting the budget for your school, just like when you're deciding how to spend your own money, you could spend money on a pay-for product and ensure that there was a greater protection for your data. Or you can go for the free option, which might be quite attractive if budgets are tight in your household or in your school or academy group, and go for the Google option, which might seem attractive in terms of pricing, but might not be the way you want to go in terms of data privacy and how you're setting kids up to go out there into the digital world, right? That sort of seems like something that might be at play. Yeah, definitely. I'd say that equally, though, if you were maybe not using a setup where there was no Google or anything involved, then you wouldn't want to be um, setting them up not to be able to have that sort of education of something they're going to use anyway or stuff in the real world. But yeah, not um, easy questions for people to consider. And to be honest, I imagine that um, the data protection and, and some of the other decisions about sort of like how much company individual, how much power individual companies have and stuff like that probably aren't always uh, the front of mind when you're working in an education sector and also um having to think about budgets and all all other types of things it's one small element in probably a bigger decision making process yeah i hope we have a pretty technically literate readership and if you've got kids in school and you're hitting up against these problems of your school making bad decisions about the technology it procures or what products and services it uses to educate your kids we'd be really interested to hear from you podcast at wired.co.uk how's that playing out at your school and what impact is it having on your children's education and relationship with technology podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with us about that or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week that's just about it for this time we'll see you again same time next week have a good one bye bye goodbye